If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Just like as India or Australia or Canada become independent from the British Empire, so does the United Kingdom. So it is the genuinely post-imperial British nation that emerges after 1945. That was David Edgerton discussing Britain in the 20th century. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Professor David Edgerton a historian based at King's College London. He's recently authored a new book, which offers an original perspective on the history of modern Britain. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne, 
headed over to King's College to hear his arguments. So today I'm at King's College in London and I'm joined by Professor David Edgerton. David's new book is The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, which interrogates some of our existing ideas and assumptions about the United Kingdom in the 20th century. And it aims to kind of provide a new take on the political and economic development of the country in the 20th century. Um, So to start us off, I wonder whether you could just explain for people who are new to this subject, what you're talking about when you're talking about the British nation here and why you think that it needs to be put front and centre in the history of 20th century Britain. Yes, the British nation is not a phrase that's used in 20th century Britain. It's used in the 19th century in a very specific sense. So I felt free to adopt it uh, to mean something very specific. And that is the the United Kingdom as an economic, uh, political, ideological unit separate from, that emerges from the British Empire. So the basic idea of the book is... Uh, just like as India or Australia or Canada become independent from the British Empire, so does the United Kingdom. So it is the genuinely post-imperial British nation that emerges after 1945. So why does looking at the 20th century in this way, in Britain in particular, in terms of the nation and nationalism, give a new perspective on things? What kind of uh, new insights does it bring? Well, I think... um, one of the most remarkable things about the history of 20th century Britain is that we don't have nationalism. We have perhaps some idea that there was a great national feeling in 1940. There's perhaps an idea that Enoch Powell and Margaret Thatcher were nationalists. But nationalism as a notion doesn't exist. Nationalism in British history is the ideology of opponents, whether Nazis or Italian fascists or Irish Republicans or Indian anti-imperialists. You can't really be a British nationalist in the British way of thinking about nationalism. Why do you think that is? Well, that's because the, 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 the dominant ideas for, for, for at least the first half of the 20th century were either imperial, in which uh, a, a British empire encompassed lots of, lots of nations, or liberal, in which the idea of nationalism was repugnant. Nationalism implied breaking up the world economy into national economies. Something I found quite interesting is that obviously in in a lot of 20th century history, the world wars are the defining feature. You decided to throw this out the window. Why? Well, um, I I do regard the wars as hugely important to British history. I mean, who, who couldn't? Uh, but I did, I did want to suggest that the sort of stories that are told about both world wars in, in the British case are often misleading. So the basic idea in British history is that, that war has been a kind of locomotive of social progress, perhaps not as much as we once believed, but the idea has, has, has been remarkably uh, prevalent. So the Second World War is, is a people's war, it's the origins of a renewed welfare state, the origins of a post-war consensus, all these sorts of things. And those are ideas that I really do want to, to challenge. I think the great transformations... Um, were uh, not the sort that are described in in those in those stories, and indeed the, uh, a very important part of the the politics of post-war in both cases is a return to um, previous uh, previous eras. So, for example, after 1945, the Labour government is revitalising 
old industries. Uh, it's expanding coal production. It's expanding cotton textile production, shipbuilding production. It's kind of recreating an Edwardian, uh, an Edwardian economy. I think quite often we think of World War Two as the pinnacle of Britishness, essentially, Churchill um, fighting on the beaches, the Blitz spirit. But you suggest that really that is the last moment of imperialism and that really uh, this idea of a nation doesn't emerge until afterwards. I wonder whether you could talk a bit about the ideas behind that. Yes, that's absolutely right. The, um, the idea that a new nation uh, emerges in 1940 out of Dunkirk and the uh, and the Blitz, um, and it's given an ideology by Churchill's speeches is remarkably prevalent both on the left and the and the right. Um, it is uh, the most important uh, moment in 20th century British history for 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 most uh, for most uh, most accounts. Indeed, even people on the Labour left see 1940 rather than 1945 as the as the key moment. Now, I see this as a post-war construction. Uh, the sort of story a new post-war nation tells about its origins. But for me, the war needs to be understood very, very differently. It is, uh, certainly in 1940-41, the last moment when the United Kingdom and its empire is a great power. So Churchill is not at the head of a weak nation that he makes strong. Rather, he comes into office at the head of the greatest fighting machine in the world. Secondly, it's not just a question of, of empire uh, as opposed to nation. The United Kingdom and, and the empire and then the United Nations, as they were called from 1942, fought an internationalist war. So the United Kingdom uh, was part of uh, a galaxy of, of nations engaged with the whole world rather than being cut off from it. So for me, the big, the big break out of empire and out of the world economy comes in 1945 and not in 1940. Drawing on your point about imperialism there, where do you see um, its legacy shaping Britain through the 20th century? I think um, there is a legacy from uh, imperialism, and I think it's it's important, but it mustn't be exaggerated. And I think there's, a, there's been a very powerful tendency uh, amongst liberals and amongst the left to blame imperialism for British militarism, for the poor state of the economy, for racism, of course. Uh, and I think this is a, a mistaken uh, approach. Uh, I think one needs to look much more internally for the sources of, of problems, whether, uh, whether racism or militarism or uh, uh, industrial, uh, industrial deficiency. Uh, I mean, empire is interesting because imperialists wanted to create a, an economically unified empire, but they failed. And they failed because liberals um, uh, rightly pointed out that the world economy that was not in the empire was more important for British trade uh, than the empire itself. There's one exception to that, to that generalization, that is the 1940s and 1950s. That's the high point of dependence on empire for, um, for, for exports and for and for, and for imports. So one crucial move I make in the book is to insist that there is a really very important global imperial Britain uh, before, uh, before 19, 1945, which has been misunderstood uh, uh, because of the importance of nationalist critiques of, of, uh, of liberalism.
So if we think about Brexit, for example, uh, many people think that Brexit is, a, is, a, is nostalgia for empire. Uh, and I think that's wrong. If, if there is a nostalgic element, it's a nostalgia for an, a national economy where the nation's politicians controlled the economy, controlled industry. Um, now, that, that's gone. That's gone since the, since the 1970s. And the, the people who voted to, to remain in the EEC in 1975 are the people who today have voted to leave, people that were brought up in a, in a national economy and I think don't much like the new liberal economy. Now, the Brexiteers, I think, are, are, are different. I think the Brexiteers, uh, uh, they are mostly, in fact, economic liberals. So Boris Johnson wants a liberal Brexit and he should be taken at, at, his, at his word. Um, they are looking back to a period before 1914 where... Uh, the United Kingdom was the great free trading economy in uh, the world, and, and that's what they want to see again. The difficulty is that the British economy was then was the dominant economy in the world. It no longer is. Uh, what a liberal uh, global Britain means today is ownership of British infrastructure by foreign capital. It means uh, uh, control of the British economy and to some extent British society uh, is, uh, it comes from, from, from abroad, it comes from the world economy as a whole. Before 1914, British capitalists not, owned not only British railways, but the railways of half the world. Uh, they owned the utilities of half the world. Today, uh, French and German and Spanish enterprises own British utilities and liberalising Britain further isn't going to change that. So how, drawing on from that, how do you think that ideas of this national past that we hold rightly or wrongly um, have been used to political ends today and, and shape the way that we kind of um, formulate policy as well? Well, I, I think um, the stories that we tell of the national past have got very confused. Uh, they don't have the power they once did. And this is one reason for writing a new kind of history of, of Britain. I think those old stories which were in the histories. They were national stories, the rise of the welfare, the welfare state, the rise of the rise of of of, uh, of, of labour. All these all these things were central to a national to a national story and within those stories the Second World War was absolutely absolutely crucial. But say now those stories are 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 not as resonant as they as they were um, and we've seen you know desperate attempts to make them relevant again like the film Dunkirk um, and the recent film about 1940, which is a historical travesty. Um, uh, but no one much cares whether they're historically accurate or, or not. It's not. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Just the Second World War, of course, that you you kind of challenge as the people's war idea, but um, you interrogate the idea of the permissive society, um, decline, the welfare state even, as you suggest. I wonder whether you could talk us through a couple of those other examples and why you think that they need deconstructing. Yes, I mean, the the story of uh, Britain as um, the rise and perhaps the fall of the welfare state is the standard account that the university students uh, and school students uh, uh, get. Um, And the story there is told of the Liberal Party creating a kind of proto-welfare state before 1914 and the Labour government of 1945 creating it uh, in its full glory um, and Thatcherism demolishing it. Uh, It's a remarkably resilient story, but as many historians have have shown, uh, a very misleading one. Uh, a class-based welfare state was, in fact, created by conservatives in the 1920s. And what the Second World War did and what Labour did was to, was to create a welfare state not just for the 80% of the population in the working class, but for 100% of the population. So we've moved from a class to a national welfare state. Um, uh, and that welfare state was actually remarkably ungenerous in the 1940s, that the moment of its glory was the 1970s. And while Thatcherism has made the welfare state much less gener- ge- generous uh, and less universal, uh, it is the case that welfare spending today is higher than it's ever been in both absolute and relative terms. So we are, we are living peak welfare we weren't living peak welfare in the 1940s and, and, 19, and 1950s. Why do you think that some of these ideas have developed? Is it because we need a, a narrative to kind of grapple with in order to understand what's going on? Or, or is it because of how history has been written? What do you think is at the root as to why we kind of need these cliches to, um, to understand British history? Well, we need, um, it's not any old cliche that, that we use, they're very particular cliches. Uh, and I think the, the, the story of Britain was really created in the 1960s. Um, 
the focus on welfare, the focus on the rise of labour on the one hand, uh, and the stories of decline on the on the on the other. Now, those both those stories um, took out of the picture, except in 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 weird ways, empire that disappeared, uh, and also the warlike capacities of the of the British state, and also indeed British capitalism, and the importance of global British capitalism in the uh, uh, first half of the, of the of the 20th century. So those, those histories were, were both positive and negative histories, but removed from the core of those historical accounts some of the most important elements of British power. Uh, and in my book, I try to put militarism, capitalism, liberalism, empire too, back into the story. Perhaps you could speak a bit more about that militarism, the idea of the warfare state, which is something you've written about before. Yes, I mean, it is, it is extraordinary that, that, uh, that so much of British history has been written about this thing called uh, the welfare state, as if the whole nation were a, 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 welfare, a welfare state. Yet, if you look at the first half of the 20th century, the great bulk of government spending goes on waging of wars, that they're very, very expensive, uh, and on paying for the consequences of those wars. Uh, so warfare is what the British state primarily did in this uh, in this period. And if you look at the 1950s, early 1950s, 10% of gross domestic product goes on warfare. This is historically unprecedented for for, for peacetime. But the warfare state, the, the machinery of government around uh, procurement, around the maintenance of arm, armed services, is central to the state, and we need to take that. Uh, that seriously, but there's more to it than that. The the um, the British way of warfare, if, if you like, is a very technical way of warfare. It, it's a it's a uh, it's a way of warfare that involves machines. It's a way of warfare that involves killing foreign civilians, destroying the um, the economy of of enemies. So it gives one a very different um, uh, view of the British elite, its way of thinking, its its role and power in the world than the implicit idea that the British elite is primarily uh, concerned with uh, with welfare and the, the, the management of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of an internal uh, economy. You suggest that the British elites, um, as you mentioned there, have been somewhat misunderstood and that we have an idea of the, the British gentleman as a bumbling kind of backward fool, whereas really um, it wasn't things weren't quite like that. Yes, we have a, a, a remarkably strange uh, uh, picture of, of the British elite, the political elite, the administrative elite, the economic uh, uh, elite. Uh, the idea that they have been essentially useless and responsible for uh, all sorts of problems that have plagued 20th century Britain has, has been um, remarkably uh, pervasive, I mean, both on the left and the and the right, and I've certainly um, wanted to to challenge that picture. Not to say that the the British elite were all fine and dandy and um, and did uh, did did the right thing or did their best, uh, um, but rather to, to to make the point that the British elite is one of the most powerful elites the 20th century has seen. Uh, um, that it, it's used used its power brutally internally and uh, and externally. It has not been as uh, as sentimental or sentimentalist as uh, as accounts um, uh, as accounts imply. That, for example, the economic elite had much much more political power than many uh, critics 
have, uh, have, have noticed. So, for example, the two most important prime ministers uh, of the interwar um, period, Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, not only came from industrial families, were themselves industrialists. And it half houses of parliament consisted of industrialists. In those days, major local employers uh, were themselves in the House of Commons, often representing the constituency in which their main factory uh, was uh, was operating. So the, the idea that there was a, a, a business elite that was provincial, downtrodden, educationally backward uh, and politically disengaged is nonsense. You suggest throughout that um, the story of Britain at this time isn't one of continuity and stability. It's, it's one of transformation, upheaval. I wonder whether you could highlight some key moments of that. Yes, I think one... one um, uh, problem with with national histories is perhaps by their very nature have to stress uh, uh, continuity over discontinuity um, because they want to 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 evoke a national essence that is that is still the heart of what is good about a nation but also perhaps the heart of what is what is what is wrong and in the British case um, uh, uh, the, the 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 standard continuity is essentially between the Edwardian period and the present. The dominance of aristocracy, the dominance of, of finance, the dominance of, uh, of, of liberalism, the dominance of a certain kind of yeah, um, imperialism. Um, now, I, I, I challenge that uh, uh, and do indeed insist on, on radical discontinuity. So I think there is a radical difference between the Labour Party that came into office in 1945 and the Liberal governments uh, of earlier of earlier periods. Uh, and that's partly because I see Labour not as social democratic or even socialist, but nationalist. As a party that, that rhetorically put nation above class and put nation ab above individual capitalists. That was, I think, the core of the Labour of the labour of the labour program, so 1945 represents a, a an important political discontinuity. Uh, one of the least understood discontinuities, that's a hugely important one, is that um, the British nation comes to feed itself. Uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, British people relied on the wheat fields of Argentina and Canada, um, the abattoirs of Wellington and, and Montevideo for something like half their food. Uh, from uh, 19, 1945, um, uh, there was a, a sustained national and nationalist drive to make the United Kingdom self-sufficient in food. And that was essentially achieved by the, 19, the 1980s. And that transforms um, the economy in that you no longer have to export manufacturers in order to import food, as, as had been the case um, before 1945. So that, that's, that's, one, that's another very, very radical uh, uh, dis discontinuity. The British economy withdraws from the world, uh, the world economy. Another very important one is getting rid of empire. And I find it extraordinary the speed in which the great imperial party, the Conservative Party, decided empire was finished and moved to apply for membership of the common market as early as 1961. Mm 
And the idea that, that the British elite was held back from applying for uh, EEC membership because of uh, a romantic imperialism uh, seems to me uh, contradicted by that central political fact. Uh, it's important to remember, I think, that the, the party that was most opposed to entry into the common market was not the Conservative Party, but the Labour Party. If there was a Brexiteer party in post-war British history, it was Labour, not, not the Conservatives. And that points to another discontinuity, that the, those positions have now been reversed. Moving on to the decline of the British nation, um, I wonder what, what you think triggered that and whether now... It's finished. Is the British nation dead and gone? The um, the move away from an emphasis of a national economy, a, a, a national technology, um, a, a national project, arises partly out of a sense that that project was always going to fail, that the old liberal way of doing things was, was better. Uh, and also a sense that it had failed in practice. The British economy was not growing as strongly as, it, as, as the economies of other competitors. So there is a determined attempt to integrate the British economy into the, a European free market because there wasn't a possibility of doing it at a global, uh, at a global level. Um, uh, so that is a definite move away from from nation. Now, that takes time to to um, to make real, and it, indeed, it, I think it's only really in the 1990s that you that you get that. But it's a really important um, uh, 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 again discontinuity, and coal provides a very nice example. It would have been unthinkable in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, to import coal to run your power stations. Now, you might well have uh, wanted to develop nuclear power stations, uh, indeed other sorts of uh, uh, sources of electricity, but to import coal was politically unacceptable. But that is what has happened since the 1990s. It's not that coal is no longer used to generate power uh, in that period. It was that coal was imported. So, th so the idea that there were British coal mines which powered Britain just went. And that was a very, very dramatic change. But what I want to highlight is really the sense, uh, the great transformation that there's been, that it would have been inconceivable, not only to, to, to have um, foreign coal in our power stations, but to have most of our cars made abroad. Uh, our telephones made, made abroad, our clothes made uh, abroad. But that's the reality of the economy we now live in. And many of us benefit from that, uh, that global economy, but many of us don't. You start the book by suggesting that we can now look back at the 20th century um, with an outsider's perspective. And I was intrigued to hear how long you think we need as historians to be able to reflect accurately on the past. How much distance do you think um, a historian needs to give a fair analysis? So for example, would we be able to write now a fair and accurate history of the first 10 years of the 21st century, in your opinion? The answer is yes. I think the problem isn't time. I think the problem is how we think about the history. 
and I think one of the problems with 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 British history is that it's it's thought about history in terms derived from contemporary politics, uh, and has thought about that history in remarkably parochial ways. It wasn't the case that that was the only way that history could possibly have been written. Uh, and indeed, there have been a number of uh, in interesting, important historical works that have broken out of that mould. Uh, for example, uh, Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism, 1960-61, or Keith Middlemass's The Politics of Industrial Society of 19 1979, both books that were profoundly shaped by a, com uh, a sense of comparison with, with uh, other places. Um, so I, I don't think time is the is the crucial variable. It's, it's other kinds of distance that are needed. In conclusion, how do you think we should look back on the 20th century? If someone were to read your book, what do you want them to take away from it? The case of Britain, um, transformation rather than rather than continuity, power rather than weakness. Um, I want them to see. Uh, the history of the United Kingdom as a very complex one uh, in which fundamental uh, ways of thinking about what it was to be British changed. Uh, and I, I want people to see uh, the British story as they would see the Russian story or the Soviet story or the, or the German story, to see it from the outside. And to think of the United Kingdom, Britain, the British Empire, not as either a story of progress or as a story of decline or or um, or unpleasantness, but to see to see the, every side of the of the of the, of the story, yeah. uh, and fundamentally to stop moralising about our history, uh, to take it seriously as something that has uh, sh shaped the lives not only of British people, but many people around the world. That was David Edgerton. The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, a 20th Century History, is out now published by Alan Lane. And you can read a written version of this interview in our August edition, which is on sale now and also includes articles about the Battle of Amiens, badly behaved medieval monks, the Civil War and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers now. Well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will return on Thursday when Jesse Childs will be exploring religion in the Tudor era. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 